Mark 13, 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he comes suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace. Once again, we're glad that you are here worshiping with us this morning as we continue through the book of Mark. In just a moment, we will open that together as we look at all of Mark chapter 13. Um, As we get started here this morning, I'd like the record to indicate exactly what I ordered from Hy-Vee when it comes to donuts. I ordered 12 Super Bowl donuts with six Chiefs colors and six 49ers colors, and we got what we got. So that's, that's, I just don't know what to say. I don't know. They all look like Chiefs. There's more than 12. I don't know what happened. So um, just enjoy, enjoy the donuts. Um, It's good to be with you here this morning as we worship the Lord, as we open up the scriptures together. Um, As we get into things here this morning, I want to make sure that we um, throw out there, we would love for you to be on our weekly email list. We send out one email each week that just hits you with a few of the things that are most important for you. A couple notes we sent out this past week is some notes on good uh, places to park here in the community. The Congolese Church has dibs, first dibs on the parking lot down here, Uh, but there's quite a bit of parking around, and so we gave some instructions about parking. We also let you know that we're going to have donuts. Um, There's all kinds of notes that we send in there, just two or three quick notes each week. So please make sure that you are signed up on that weekly email list um, so that we can get you connected there. We're not going to spam you to death, but that's a good way to stay connected here uh, at Grace. Thank you for filling out those connection cards and those service cards and those giving um, links over the past few weeks. Uh, But if you make sure you're on the weekly email list, then uh, you will stay aware of what is going on. As we open up Mark chapter 13, you may see very quickly it says signs of the end of the age. A lot of thoughts and emotions may come up as you see that title, Signs of the End of the Age. You might even be uh, surprised that Jesus has something to say about the signs of the end of the age, especially as we're looking at Jesus as he's entered Jerusalem and as he's marching towards the cross. When I was a kid, I grew up in the church and I was terrified of anything having to do with the signs of the end of the age in scripture. Scared to death of the book of Revelation, had no idea what was going on there. I didn't want to read it. I didn't want anyone to talk about it. I just wanted to pretend like it wasn't there. I was also scared of this thing called the rapture. Uh, I was very afraid that when I was um, in a public place, I would look at the roof and I would think, I wonder what's gonna happen if there's a rapture and I'm shot up into the sky while I'm in this particular building. TV preachers late at night scared me to death as they had their maps and charts and tried to figure out the exact time and place that Jesus would come back. 
I grew up in a community um, near Kansas City, and in one of those suburbs of Kansas City, there was a religious group of people that thought that not only did they know the day, but the location that Jesus would come back, and they built a building that they thought he would come back to right there in one of the suburbs of Kansas City. Then as I got older and I started reading for the, Bi- the Bible for myself, I thought I just needed to avoid Revelation. And then I started reading Daniel. I was like, it's not just lions? What is going on in this book? It's not just Daniel and the lions, and there's a lot of scary stuff in here too. Well, as we open Mark 13, we see Jesus address signs of the end of the age. When we think of the end of the age, we may think of this guy, the chart guy, trying to figure out when Jesus comes back, what's, what's going to happen? And all this numerology, math that people do with references in scripture, trying to figure out the location that Jesus is going to come back and the date that Jesus is going to come back. If you're like me, you end up just avoiding the whole topic. And maybe just being like, I, Jesus wins in the end. I don't know what's going to happen. So today we're going to try to answer the question as we open Mark 13. Why does Jesus take the time to teach about the end of the age? Why does Jesus take the time to teach about the end of the age? Would you pray with me and for me as we open the scripture together? Father, we want to continue to exalt and magnify your name because you're worthy of that. God, we pray that we would receive great hope and comfort from your word this morning pray that we would receive the warnings that Jesus lays out five times in this passage to stay alert and stay awake. God, we join not only our Congolese brothers and sisters downstairs, but uh, believers all over the world as they open up the scriptures and as they fellowship together. God, we um, know that you are the God of all tribes, tongues, nations, people, and we rejoice in that. We come to you humbly today asking that you would speak We pray that we would have a heart that says, speak for your servant is listening today. God, I pray that we would receive uh, what you have for us this morning. I pray that we would be focused on you and that we would hear directly from you. Thank you that you've spoken to us. God, give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts that believe what you say. Give us hands and feet ready to obey you and do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open with me if you haven't already to Mark 13. Um, Not going to put a a ton of this up on the screen, so if you would follow along with me. And we have a lot of verses to cover here. Um, It will not do it justice if I try to summarize some of this. It'll make a confusing passage even more confusing. So it's really going to help if you follow along through Mark 13 as we go through these large chunks of passage. And at the end, we're going to talk about what's clear in this passage. There's a lot that's not clear, but we're going to end today talking about what is clear. So Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So we're we read this and we should have a question in our mind as we read this. We should think, is Jesus speaking physically or metaphorically here? Jesus has referred to himself as the temple that would be torn down but would rise again. Jesus has used the temple as a metaphor both for him and for his people. 
And they're walking by the literal temple. Also, if you know history, you will know that in the year 70 AD, that literal temple in Jerusalem was torn down. Um, in the Roman Empire, it was torn down. And not only that, but commentators disagree wildly on this passage. But the one thing that they tend to all agree on, the ones that I read about anyway in this section of Mark, say that the church reading the book of Mark would have been reading it right around the time that that the temple was physically torn down. So is Jesus speaking metaphorically here, or is he speaking physically? That the temple would literally be torn down, or is he talking metaphorically about his body, or is he talking about the church? Let's keep reading to see more what he has to say. Verses 3 through 6. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. A quick note here before we moved on. This happened in the time of Jesus. This happened before the time of Jesus. This happened during the book of Acts. And this still continues to this day where people appear and say that they are either the Son of God or say that they are a prophet from the Son of God and then proclaim to a group of people what their vision for life is. We even see in Acts chapter 5, one of the chief priests says, look, other people like this have risen up, and then we silenced them, and their followers dispersed and went away. Jesus is saying that's going to continue to happen. It did happen. It would continue to happen. It happens yet to this day. People that come along and say, I'm he. I'm the one that you should follow. I'm the son of God. You should listen to me, or I have more to say on top of what Jesus already said. Continuing in verse 7, And when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains. Here Jesus uses an analogy. He's going to use another one in just a moment of a fig tree, different fig tree than the one he cursed a couple weeks ago, apparently. Uh, But here he is using this metaphor of birth pains. There's a few things that you can anticipate when you hear the the metaphor of birth pains. One, it's painful. Can I get an amen from anyone in here with personal experience? Um, Birth pains, painful. That's step one. Uh, The second thing we know is that birth pains get worse. Can I get an amen? Some of you know what I'm talking about. They start out small, spread far apart, they get worse. Closer together, more painful. I know this not from experiencing it, but from watching it happen four times. It gets worse. Third, the other thing we can take from this is, Lord willing, it ends with something wonderful. It's supposed to end with something beautiful. New life. Jesus, as we will continue to read this passage, we will see that he is referring to all three. He is saying, birth pains hurt, birth pains get worse, but it leads to something beautiful. There is a birth on the other end. Now verses 9 through 13, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. 
And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Once again, this prophecy comes true for the disciples. They were persecuted. They did stand and give an account. The book of Acts is largely the first few chapters is their sermons that they're given when they're brought before trial. And we read the sermons that they gave. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit gives them the words to say. So this takes place for them. However, it also takes place for the future beyond them where men and women are persecuted, they are put on trial, they are asked to give account for their faith, and he says, don't worry about what you will say. The Holy Spirit not only will speak, it's not your words, but it's the words of the Holy Spirit that will be spoken through you. He's telling them, you will be persecuted. Verse 14. Things are about to get weird. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and there never will be. Look back with me at verse 14. In my uh, translation here, which is the ESV, in parentheses it says, let the reader understand. There's a problem. Do you understand? (laughs) I don't. It says let the reader understand, but when I read that, I just read, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where, you ought, where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, that's a self-referential meta comment. Like, well, of course you know what I'm talking about. Well, there's a problem. We have no idea what he's talking about. We have no idea what he's talking about. So we have to try to figure this out. What is he talking about? First, he says the abomination of desolation. This is a phrase that uh, he is quoting directly from the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we read three times that there is this abomination of desolation that will take place in the future. So that's one thing. The second thing is we're told here that this is where he ought not to be. We see this as a he. It's a person. It's it's an individual. It's a historical person that's taking place here. Now, the translators differ on who this is. Is it Satan? Is it a historical figure? It could be all kinds of different people, but it's, it's a person. And it's this abomination of desolation that the book of Daniel talks about. Now, we need to get into interpretations. There are four main interpretations of this passage, and they all use these verses that I just read, this understanding of the abomination of desolation, the fact that it's a historical figure, the surrounding context that we read here, to come away with four interpretations of what's being said here. And not only that, they give a framework for how we are supposed to translate the rest of it. Okay? So there's four interpretations. First, one interpretation is that this prophecy is only talking about the present and very near future. 
if this is the case, the application is only for the disciples and the apostles, the, the followers of Jesus in this time. Okay, so that's the first interpretation. This is in the immediate future or present as the disciples are hearing this, and the application is just for them. Part of the context that leads commentators to believe this is uh, in verse 30. Look at uh, Mark 13, verse 30 with me. It says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So that's where the commentators are saying this is for the disciples. All this is going to take place in their time. Again, the book of Daniel in chapters 9, 11, and 12 talks about this abomination of desolation that will come. This interpretation says that this person is going to come and is ultimately going to be the one that tears down the temple. So that's one interpretation. The second interpretation is that this is only talking about the future, that all of these things would be future tense. Most commentators would believe that these are yet to come even for us that they're end times things that are taking place, that the abomination of desolation has to do with something called an antichrist that we read about in the book of Revelation, that it comes in the end times, maybe a time of tribulation, that it's uh, the beginnings of the end are coming. So some believe that's what Jesus is talking about. If that's true, then the application is only for some future group of people. Not for them, probably not for us. Third interpretation that this is talking about the present, the near future, and the distant future. This is one-stop shopping, one-size-fits-all application for everyone. That means that this passage, the interpreters would say, is talking to the disciples, is talking to the first century church that we read about in the book of Acts, and that is also for us, and that is for some future group of people as well, that there's multiple fulfillments taking place here. There's really good precedent for this in scripture. Think about the promises of David that we read that are fulfilled in David, but are also fulfilled in a future Messiah when Christ comes. So that would be the third interpretation. The fourth interpretation, this is primarily or maybe entirely metaphor. It's all spiritual. It's all about spiritual things that are taking place in heaven and it's not anything that's gonna take place here on earth. So those are the four major categories of interpretation. And I'm going to be very ungenerous here, but I'm going to include myself. What most Christians do with this is they say, I don't know. I don't know. So I'm just not going to think about it. I'm not going to dig into it. It's not clear. We don't want to be the guy on the screen with the charts and the maps and the numerology. So we're just like, I don't know. Jesus wins in the end. Let's move on. Let's go back to the epistles, right? So that's usually what we do with these different interpretations. So in a little bit, we'll talk about what do we do with all this? What do we do with all these interpretations? But before we do, let's continue on in the passage. Mark 13, verses 20 through 23. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, and if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all of these things beforehand. As I sat and wrote this sermon, I was at a coffee shop where there was a TV, 
And the whole time I was there, there was nothing on the TV but bad news about stuff going on in the Middle East. It showed wars that were taking place and conflicts that were taking place, and then it wanted to show things that are going on in Israel, and it didn't even have to like pan out or zoom out to, or go to another hemisphere. It just was like right here. And it struck me that not only in our time, but throughout time, there have been wars and rumors of wars and conflict and totalitarian regimes and people being persecuted and violence being met with violence. And you can look at that on a global scale. You can also look at that on an interpersonal scale. Rumors, conflict, and rumors of war. There are conflicts and there are persecutions and there are suffering that are always going on personally, corporately, or worldwide at a global scale. There are things that happen in our lives, there are things that happen in our community, and there are things that happen on a global scale that make it seem like there is no one in control, let alone a loving God. One of the takeaways that we get from this passage is that God is in control of all of history. Second Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that, but that all should reach repentance. One takeaway from all of this is what we read here plainly in Scripture, that he will cut short the suffering for the sake of his elect. That's really good news. When we look at our lives, when we look at the news, when we look at our world, when we look at the community around us, it is good news that he will cut short our suffering. He continues on in verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. This is directly a prophecy from the Old Testament. We read in the book of Zechariah that this is something that will take place, that God will collect his people from the four winds. He talks about this in Isaiah as well, that he will cut short their suffering, he will call them together, and he will end their days of sadness and suffering. Then in verses 28 through 31, we read an analogy or a metaphor of a fig tree that continues in this idea of birth pains, that you see something sprouting, you see something beginning, and you know it's just the beginning, but something good is going to come from it. Then we come to today's scripture that Maggie read for us in verses 32 through 37. I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but I do want to point out to you Uh, an emphasis here that Jesus has for his disciples and for us. In verse 33, he says, be on guard, keep awake. In verse 34, he says, stay awake. In verse 35, he says again, stay awake. In verse 37, he says, stay awake. He also says this in verses 23, verse 5, and verse 9. He says it either stay awake, be alert, or be on guard. He's saying the same thing six times in this chapter. Over and over again, he wants them to stay awake. He says no one knows the time when these things will take place. That's a little clue for us on 
thinking deeply about this passage, but not getting too carried away with trying to figure out our own personal interpretation of the passage. We're to stay awake. We're to be on guard. We're to be ready for these things that will take place and not be like the slumberer who doesn't notice when things are going on around them. We read time and time again in the uh, uh, epistles to be sober-minded. This is what Jesus is talking about here, being aware of the things that are going on around us. There's got to be a happy medium, a faithful median between numerology chart guy that I showed on the screen and just being like, oh, we don't know. And just becoming in a slumber and living our life like Jesus isn't coming back. So, much in this passage is not clear. As I said, I read four commentaries about this passage and they all disagreed. They all had various approaches to this that I laid out in the different interpretations. So we're going to end our time today by talking about what is clear. What can we take away from this that is a truth that we can just know for sure? So first, man's kingdom is temporary. Man's kingdom is temporary. We spend much of our time busy about building our own kingdom. Busy with our own kingdom, busy with our own concerns, even when we don't feel like that's consciously what we're doing, subconsciously we are often working on building our own kingdom, our own sense of security. We're thinking that things depend on us, that we have to build the walls around our life, that we have to build the creature comforts that we need, that we have to have a sense of control. So we go about building our own kingdom. Sometimes we just get busy with the daily struggle of getting the work in on time or getting through the day or raising our kids or staying healthy as a person. We just get caught up in the busy of the daily struggle and we forget that man's kingdom is temporary. Anything that we're building for ourselves, anything that we're experiencing in this world, anything that we see on the news, temporary. That's important for us to keep in mind. Sometimes we are working actually in opposition of building God's kingdom by building our own kingdom. Sometimes we don't even notice which kingdom we're living for. Often we just aren't aware, we aren't alert, we aren't on guard to which kingdom we are living for. Let's make sure we take away from this passage there is only one kingdom that will last forever. And we need to make sure we are working towards and building towards and serving that king and for that kingdom instead of building our own kingdom. Next, what is clear from this passage? He will gather his people. It's a promise. He will cut short their time of suffering and he will gather his elect. My son, who's seven, had one of his fellow classmates over for a play date, and we ordered some pizza, And because what seven-year-old doesn't like pizza, or 43-year-old doesn't love pizza, uh, but we ordered some pizza, and this kid is um, just really sharp, and he says everything that runs through his head, so it's, it's a wild ride having him over. Um, he's also a pastor's kid. You got to watch out for that. You got to watch out for those pastor's kids. Uh, His dad is one of the pastors at Veritas. He's in my son's class at Faith Academy. And we had him over for a play date. And just out of nowhere, he goes, can you guys imagine if there was no sin and death? I'm like, oh, yeah. 
that's normal. Um, but the, it gets better. He said, imagine if there was no sin and no death. He's like, our technology would be so much better. And see these buildings, they would all be taller. And not only that, of course there would be more amusement parks. I mean, amen, right? <laughs> this is the good life. This is the kingdom come, right? Better technology, taller buildings, more amusement parks. Who's not down with that, right? It was so funny and so fun to hear what was going on in his mind. But my idea of heaven is not that different, actually. My idea of the kingdom come is not that different than his friends, the seven-year-old. God's kingdom come, yes, there are creature comforts of it, of course. There is a, a huge feast at the wedding banquet of the Lamb. It's a physical reality that we'll experience in the new heavens and the new earth, but it is ultimately about the people of God being gathered together to worship the one true king. That's what the kingdom come is all about. And when he says he will cut short their suffering, it's because he will gather his people to be a new Jerusalem. He's promised his people from the beginning that he is making them into something. He is making them into a new Jerusalem, a new dwelling place of the spirit of God. In the very beginning of all things in the Garden of Eden, God spoke and created everything, and he also walked with them in the garden. The kingdom come is going to be that powerful God walking in the garden with his people once again. He will gather his people with the snap of his finger. God has always promised to deliver and gather his people. And they will worship him at his feet. He has provided, he is providing now, and he will provide everything that we need as we go through suffering. And then we see his promise that he can end suffering once and for all. And then we're promised that one day he will end suffering once and for all. Let's make sure that we don't miss that in this promise and in this passage. Next, number three. We need to be alert and awake. We saw this six times in this passage. We need to be on guard. We need to be awake. We need to not be led astray. Second Peter chapter 3 puts it this way. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be? Great question. If everything we see is temporary and only what's done for God's kingdom will last, what sort of people ought we to be? Peter's answer we should live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and even hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're waiting for and that's what he brings with him. We need to be alert, awake, and stay on guard to make sure we are living for that kingdom. Number four, there is always a spiritual reality and a physical reality at play when we read scripture. This is where interpretation goes wrong. When we over-spiritualize or make something into a metaphor, or when we say something is only physical or political or something we will see on this earth, we typically miss what's really going on in the passage. 
There's always a physical reality where these things are taking place, and there's a spiritual or metaphorical reality or a heavenly reality that's going on as well. And when I've seen interpretation go wrong, whether it be me or commentaries or books or whatever it is, it's when people focus on one and say, it's just this. So it can't be this. And so really what we decide about Mark 13, whether you think one of those four interpretations is right or not, the fact of the matter is that there is a spiritual reality and a physical reality when it comes to our suffering, God's kingdom coming, and him being king of the whole earth and the whole universe, and all things being made by him, through him, and for him. That's a reality, no matter what our interpretation of the passage is. Which leads to the last point, and hopefully the most applicable one for us today. We can take comfort no matter the circumstances. What we miss when we ignore passages like this, or the book of Revelation, or the second half of the book of Daniel, what we miss is a great comfort for us in times of trouble. It is so important that we remember that we are not the first people to suffer. And there have been wars and rumors of wars and Christians somewhere in the world thinking this is the end at all times. We can take great comfort in knowing the God of the universe who made everything, he, he's in charge. He's in control of all things. No matter what we see in the headlines, no matter what we see going on in our life or our community, he is the one that is in charge. There is always something going on in our world that can cause us to lose faith, that can cause us to be discouraged, that can cause us to be down. Throughout history, this has been the case. In the intertestamental periods between the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, there was this guy named Antiochus who defiled the temple. He led a group of people into the temple of God and defiled it in every way possible. He basically took anything that was uh, defiled or filthy from the Old Testament and he literally physically threw it all over inside the temple to defile the temple. There was at one time a statue of Zeus that was set up in the temple by the Greek people living in the Roman Empire. Then in 70 AD, the temple came down to its foundations. The temple in Jerusalem torn down physically. That and throughout church history and even to this day, there are things going on in our world that make it seem like, is there a God that's in control of this? First Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. What looks like a setback for the kingdom or your life or for the church is really an opportunity for the Lord to show his power and his mercy. When Jesus died on Friday and on Saturday and until dawn on Sunday, it looked like hope was gone. For his fans, it looked like he was just another false messiah. 
For his foes, it looked like they had extinguished their biggest problem. To his followers, it seemed like the worst had happened. At our Good Friday service this year, we plan on singing a song called Holy Saturday. And in it, here are the lyrics. After the last words are spoken, we laid him down in the grave. After our hearts have been broken, have all of our hearts been betrayed? Imagine his family, imagine his disciples, imagine the church, imagine those who were truly trying to follow Jesus. Imagine them watching him be brutally killed. Imagine him being put into a tomb. Imagine a giant immovable stone being put in front of his grave. Imagine what Saturday must have been like for them. Their hope had been placed in him. Everything that he has said and done throughout the book of Mark, everything that they have seen him do, he brought others back from the dead. He touched those who were defiled. He healed the lame. He touched and spoke to and spent time with those that everyone else thought was dirty and impure. And on Saturday, he laid in a grave. They thought all hope was gone. They thought their Messiah had been murdered. But it was really just the beginning. His glory was yet to be revealed. And on the third day, he rose. At dawn, the women found the tomb empty. He had a plan to overcome sin and death, to overcome his enemies, not just so we could have better technology and bigger buildings, but so that we would be delivered We could spend eternity with him, worshiping the one true king. We can take comfort no matter the circumstances. God is in control. And we worship with a line of brothers and sisters throughout church history who have suffered for the sake of Christ. And we can take great comfort in knowing that we are not alone. We're going to continue to worship here this morning if you would stand with me. I'll pray for us and we'll continue to sing to this one true king. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are in control of all things. Thank you that with a snap of your fingers, you could end suffering and persecution and death and sadness once and for all. Not only that, but Jesus, we thank you for the promise that you will someday. We take great comfort and hope in that. Jesus, may we worship you as the risen king, the king of all kings, who now sits at the right hand of the Father and one day will sit on his earthly throne in the new heavens and the new earth in the seat that you deserve, Jesus. You are worthy of all of our praise. Receive these words of comfort and assurance, the very last words of scripture, and at the end of all things in the book of Revelation. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. The church proclaims, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Go in grace and we'll see you soon.